You who have studied Civil War history would be quick to recognize the name Antietam, the Battle of Antietam in the state of Maryland. One of the most famous, one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. Interestingly, it was the first battle fought north of the Mason-Dixon line. Lots of blood was shed at Antietam. I was reading a little bit about that recently and read about 65 men who comprised Walcott's brigade in the Northern Army. And they were under heavy attack by the Confederates and they called out for help. They said, we need help here. We're, not, we're, we're under a heavy barrage. And the message was sent back to them, you must hold your position. I have no help to send. And so they did. They held their position uh, and, of course, uh, ultimately were successful in that battle. But of the 65 men that comprised Walcott's, Walcott's brigade, only eight of them escaped that battle without at least some injury. Many were killed. All, uh, almost all were at least wounded. Only eight walked away unscathed, but they held their position. They stood firm. Really, the idea of standing firm, that's the notion that we want to develop in our study this morning. When you think about a great battle like the Civil War Battle of Antietam and how different individual units uh, in a battle like that might have to stand their ground, hold their position, stand firm. We can, see, we can sort of see that imagery in regards to a physical war or battle, but that same sort of imagery is used regarding our spiritual battle. And as Christians, as soldiers in God's army, we're supposed to hold our position. We're supposed to stand firm. In the text that Joseph read for us earlier from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Then that text is going to go on and enumerate the elements of the Christian's armor. And then it concludes by saying, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. I want you to notice three times in that text that expression, stand firm. You need to stand firm. That, that expression literally comes from a, a military term that meant to stand against. And the idea was holding a position in the face of an attack. And so this actually comes, and it, of course it makes sense in, in that context. He's talking about armor, talking about a Christian putting on armor. It's not surprising that Paul would use by inspiration a military term that would suggest a soldier holding his position even under a great attack. God expects us to do so. In fact, that expression is found a number of times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I think it's interesting here that standing firm is equated with acting like men. It's equated with being strong. We're supposed to stand firm. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And again, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Stand firm. Would you agree with me that standing firm is the opposite of, or stands in contrast to expressions like 
give in, give up, yield, or compromise. It's just exactly the opposite of that, right? Sometimes we can get a grasp for the meaning of a thing if we, talk, if we think of its opposites. And the opposites of stand firm would be things like give in, give up, yield, or compromise. In war, in physical war, those who stand are honored. You know, they're called heroes. And we have memorials all over our country to heroes who in the military sense stood firm. Those who don't stand firm, of course, are shamed. If you had a soldier who turned his back in the face of battle, that would be a shameful thing, a coward, a deserter. And they're punished for that sort of thing. Well, what about our spiritual fight? In our spiritual fight, we want to be among those who stand firm. And, that, and we want to make that our discussion uh, this morning. Before we go further into that, um, before we talk about some areas where we need to be standing firm, uh, let's just stop to say thank you for being here this morning. We appreciate everyone who uh, has made the effort to come to this time of Bible study and worship. We're glad that you're here. We have visitors. We're very grateful for your presence this morning. We want you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. As always, we're open to your questions. Uh, any way we can help you with Bible study, please say so. We'd be anxious to do that. Special, uh, special uh, greeting to the raspberries. We're so glad to have Larry and Diane visiting with us today. We've been thinking about, you should know, we've been thinking about sending a petition to the governor of Arkansas to have you all deported uh, from Arkansas and back to Tennessee. We may do that yet, but we're glad to see the raspberries this morning. All right, what about standing firm? What are some of the areas where this principle, I hope you understand the principle already set forth, where would be some areas where this principle needs to be applied? Well, first of all, and I think you might have had this top on your priority list, we need to stand firm in the fight for truth. Error is from the devil. Truth is from God. Error enslaves. The truth of God makes men free. Um, there's a strong emphasis placed, therefore, in the Word of God on standing for the truth and defending the truth. And so we need to stand firm in the fight for truth. Strong words are used in regards to this sort of thing. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul told Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. But notice he used again the concept of a military term here, be on guard. Every once in a while when we're talking with Monty, we know Monty loves the notion of prospecting for gold, and, and, and so Monty will tell us, he says, all I want is a gallon of gold. If I had a gallon of gold, I'd stop, you know. Well, a gallon of gold would be worth hundreds of thousands, perhaps several million dollars. Can you imagine? Money goes off prospecting and he finds his gallon of gold. And then he just leaves that bucket in the back of his pickup truck while he's driving around town. You wouldn't do that, would you? You would guard that bucket of gold worth so much money. You don't leave valuable things unguarded. Well, that's the principle here. The Word of God, the truth of God is a precious, valuable thing, so essential to us, in fact, it needs to be guarded. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning verse 1, it says, The Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, 
in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So Paul, writing to Timothy, says that he needs to point out those who would oppose the truth. He needs to identify them. Unfortunately, in, in our day and time, uh, folks don't like to hear names named. They hate, they, they hate the concept of identifying false doctrines and those who teach them. But Paul actually told Timothy, you need to point these things out. You need to point out the false doctrines and those who would promote them. You need to name names. We need to take such a strong stand for truth. God's Word expects that of us. To Titus, another young evangelist, Paul said in Titus 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be both able to exhort in sound doctrine to refute those who contradict. Notice, we're supposed to be able. Uh, here, actually, in, in these verses, Paul was telling Titus what to look for in men who would be appointed as elders over a local congregation. And, and an elder, but really all of us, need to be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Unfortunately, so many people these days say, I don't, oh, no, I don't want to argue. I, don't, I wouldn't want to argue about anything religiously. Well, that's wrong. Right? We're supposed to engage those who oppose what is right. We're commanded to do that. So in all of this, we're suggesting the idea we need to stand firm. We have the truth of God, and we need to stand firm for that truth. In fact, so much so that we might go to the extreme measure stated in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. When, when it talks about marking and avoiding those who teach things contrary to the doctrine, you would definitely walk away from that statement suggesting that there should be no compromise here. There can be no giving in. In fact, in 2 John, beginning verse 9, John tells us to, to in no way participate with those who would pervert the truth of God. Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Again, in no way participate with those who would be perverting God's truth. All of this would begin, of course, with our own understanding of and commitment to the truth. Uh, if we don't know it, we certainly can't defend it. We can't stand for it. If we aren't fully committed to God's truth, uh, then we're very more likely to compromise and to yield to those who oppose it. But notice what Paul said here in Ephesians 4, beginning verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by sleight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. We shouldn't be like immature children who can be pushed around uh, with every wind of doctrine. But we need to know and be fully committed to the truth so that we can stand firm. So the first application of the principle, <clears throat> again, our general principle is we need to take up a defensive posture, stand, be, be prepared to stand, even in the face of an attack, the first application of that would be take a stand in the fight for God's truth. I think there are some other important areas where we might apply the same notion. 
One would be in our personal battles with temptation. Uh, when it comes to being tempted with the things of this world, the Scripture uses words like, here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Put it aside. In other words, we're, every one of us as Christians is facing a personal battle and on a daily, continual basis, we're going to be tempted with sin. What do you do? Lay aside every weight, the sin which doth so easily beset us. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. You know, this expression, abhor that which is evil, is one that we ought to perhaps concentrate on for a minute. Um, the idea of abhorring that which is evil is even a stronger word than the notion of hating what is evil. We should hate what is evil, but it should be stronger than that. We should abhor what is evil. But unfortunately, what happens too often is that we don't really hate evil. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not outraged against it. Instead, we want to almost embrace it. And as Christians, I think, unfortunately, sometimes we want to see how close we can get to sin rather than to see how far away we can stay from it. We're too familiar with it. We're too comfortable with sin. We don't abhor it. And so uh, we're not really standing firm. Uh, we're, we're allowing an opening for temptation to overtake us because we do not abhor that which was, is evil. Also in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. As we said, a reality of living in the current world is that we're going to be facing temptation constantly. But we should, what's unfortunate is that we set ourselves up for failure too often because we make provision for the flesh. We've used an illustration in the past, hopefully we'll sort of stick in our mind, if I'm on a diet, I do not need to be putting a four-layer chocolate cake in the middle of the kitchen table so that every time I walk through the kitchen I see that delicious-looking chocolate cake and I want a piece of it. Because I'm going to tell you, if it's there, sooner or later I'm going to take a piece of that cake, even if I'm not supposed to be eating it on my diet, right? Setting myself up for failure, making provision to violate my diet plan. Well, spiritually speaking, I'm afraid as Christians we do that too much. We have access to things. We continue to provide for ourselves access to things that sooner or later are going to cause us to yield to temptation and sin. If I have access to some of the horrible things that are on TV and some of the terrible programming that's there, if I can go to those channels... And I even know what numbers they are on the remote. And I go to those channels and look at that nasty stuff. Why do I have that? Why would I even want that? If available in my house, I've made provision for the flesh. If, if, I'm, if I'm unable to control my viewing habits on the Internet, and I mean, you can find anything and everything you want on the Internet, and if you're not able to control that, then why do you still have the Internet? You know, life does not depend upon having Internet access. And if I'm not able to control what I'm doing on the Internet, I'm making provision for the flesh because it's there. And I've already demonstrated my weakness in regard to those things. And if I, I still have it. 
I can go there. You see the idea of making provision for the flesh? We need to take a stand. In our personal battles with temptation, we need to stand. If I have friends who are constantly tempting me and bringing me down and causing me to sin, why do I still have those friends? Why do I still maintain those associations? If I've not been able to change them, but they're changing me, why do I continue in those relationships? Why do I continue to engage in activities that open me up to sin? I'm making provision for the flesh. That's a strong statement from Paul. We need to make application of it. So stand firm. Stand firm not only in the fight for truth, but also in our personal battles with temptation. We need to stand firm in the face of disappointments. Disappointments are a reality of life. We get disappointed about different things. And in our spiritual lives, I think we get Oftentimes we get disappointed in ourselves. We're disappointed that we didn't do better. We knew better and we should have done better and we didn't. And so we grow disappointed. Or maybe we get dis disappointed in others. You know, maybe sometimes our brethren let us down. Uh, and we get discouraged because of that and disappointed. Or maybe we get disappointed because we're not seeing the kind of results that we would like to see in regards to spreading the gospel and converting lost souls to Christ. There's an, any number of things in our spiritual life that might cause us to be disappointed and discouraged. But I'll tell you, in the face of those kind of things, we should never give up. Don't give up. Stand firm. Certainly don't let others' failures uh, serve as some form of false justification for you to do what you shouldn't do. Uh, don't quit. Don't give up. Stand firm. In Galatians chapter 6 at verse 9. Galatians 6 verse 9, Paul said, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. That first expression, don't lose heart in doing what is good. Don't grow discouraged. Don't give up. There are certain disappointments for sure. Uh, and, and we may have to face them pretty regularly. But we should not grow discouraged. We should keep doing what needs to be done. Even in the face of disappointment, we need to stand firm. So, in the fight for truth, in our personal battles with temptation, against the discouragements that may come our way. Finally, let me suggest one more. I think there's probably lots of areas where this principle would apply. But let me suggest one more area. We need to stand firm in every relationship that we are in in life. We need to be seen as standing firm for God's truth and what is right in every relationship. When we read in the book of Revelation, the letters that the Lord addressed to the seven churches of Asia, in some of those, there were some things going on in those churches that kind of make you scratch your head. For instance, here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have some things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, why was that church continuing to put up with that Jezebel woman anyway? Why, why, why were they continuing to be in a relationship with that woman? Why would they let that be a continuing source of problems for them, even threatening their relationship with the Lord? Well, we don't know uh, what might have been the case, but you could speculate about some possibilities. Maybe, maybe this Jezebel woman was related to other members in the congregation, and, and uh, the, her relatives didn't want to take a stand against her. Or maybe she was a very prominent woman, very, very forceful and outgoing. Maybe she did things that others in the congregation weren't willing to do, you know. Maybe she was out there providing some acts of service that others didn't do. She was busy, she was active, but she wasn't right. 
for whatever reason. We don't know. We simply don't know. For whatever reason, they were unwilling to break that relationship with her. They should have. And the Lord was holding that against them because they were continuing to tolerate her. Again, in Revelation 2, verse 14, to another congregation, he said, I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. This church was uh, tolerating those who taught false doctrine. Why, why would they do that? Well, again, we don't know and it's not specified, but you can imagine that there were certain situations in that congregation that caused them to be uh, prone to compromise, to give in, to yield, and they shouldn't have. And the Lord was holding that against them. History is full of examples of churches that would not stand. And it's clear from these statements in the letters to the seven churches of Asia that the Lord held that against those churches who refused to take a stand. We know another example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we've often studied the case of, of the man at Corinth who was immoral among the members there. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Well, why, did they, why did the church at Corinth keep putting up with this immoral man? Why did they do something about that? Well, again, we can speculate. It's just easier. It's easier to do nothing. It's easier to compromise. Uh, it's easier just to go along, get along, not cause any ripples. To fail to stand, right, is what we're talking about. These people would not stand for what was right. You know, sometimes, unfortunately we've seen this, sometimes people are willing to stand until it involves maybe a good friend. Uh, I, 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 I stood for what was right until my good friend got involved in that, or a beloved brother of mine took a position, and so I sort of compromised on that because this fellow uh, that I admire so much, uh, he, he took that view, and so I've kind of yielded on that, or maybe a family member. How many of you have known people who compromised their position on a doctrinal stand because of a family member? Maybe, maybe my relative uh, got involved in some sort of... Uh, unscriptural divorce and remarriage situation. And what did it do? It caused me to change my view on divorce and remarriage so I could justify my brother or my sister, my son or my daughter who got involved in that sort of thing. I, I compromised. I, I didn't stand because it was a loved one who was involved. We're talking about cases where people might have formally stood strong, but when it became close to home in their relationships, they turned a blind eye. Some even changed position in order to accommodate a loved one. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, we must stand, Jesus said, even if it's our own family. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so, I would suggest to you that this principle that we've been trying to build upon this morning, the idea of taking a firm stand, is a thing that's required of us in every relationship we're in. Because standing firmly for what's right, for God's way, for His truth, is more important than any other relationship that we have uh, in this world. 
standing firm. Again, as we said earlier, this, this concept comes from a, a military terminology. That, and so you can very easily picture a soldier under heavy attack, but he's expected to hold his position, to stand firm. Much is riding on whether or not he is successful in holding his position. Whole battles have turned because maybe just a handful of men held their ground, stood firm, kept their position. In the great spiritual battle that we're engaged in, much depends upon our determination to stand firm. And as Christians, we must have that commitment. Are you doing that? Are you being firm in your service to the Lord? We're about to sing a song of invitation. And in preparation for that, I want us all to think about whether or not we've really taken a firm stand and continue to stand firm for what is right. As Christians, our lesson this morning has been addressed primarily to those of us who are Christians already. Have you taken a, a strong, firm stand and do you continue to do so? I hope that you have, but if you realize as you look back and analyze your situation that you're not standing where you once did, that you've not been firm in your defense of what's right, that you've not even been living right yourself, that you've fallen away from faithfully serving the Lord, we would urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. For those in our assembly this morning who are not yet Christians, we would urge you to take that stand. Stand up, be counted among God's people, obey the gospel, plan of salvation, Become a child of God through hearing the truth and believing it, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus, to be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can assist you in that obedience or if we can study more with you about those things, just say a word. We'd be anxious to do so. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.